welcome everyone to a very special episode of Neutrality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. Friends, we have with us Dr. Mimi Haddad, the President and CEO of CBE International. CBE stands for Christians for Biblical Equality. And you're thinking, wait, I've heard that before. And you have many, many times on this podcast, because so many of our book giveaways have been from their bookstore. We've talked about their conferences, their publications, and you guys are going to learn even more about that today. But first, let me introduce our guest. She is a graduate of the University of Colorado in Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, summa cum laude. She holds a PhD in historical theology from the University of Durham, England. Palmer Theological Seminary of Eastern University awarded Mimi an honorary doctorate of divinity in 2013. She's part of the leadership of Evangelicals for Justice and a founding member and leader of the Evangelicals and Gender Study Group at the Evangelical Theological Society. Haddad is an award-winning author and has written more than 100 academic and popular articles and blogs. She's also an adjunct professor of historical theology at Fuller Seminary and Zinzendorf School of Doctoral Studies. Mimi has taught for colleges and seminaries around the world, and she currently serves as a gender consultant for World Vision International, World Relief, and Beyond Borders. Mimi and her husband, Dale, live in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, and we are so glad to have her here. So Mimi, thank you. And of course, we put all of our guests through this. We want to start with watch, read, or listen. And uh, we'll, we'll give you a chance to think about it, though. So Blake, why don't you tell us first, what are you watching, reading, or listening to? So I'm going to cheat because I haven't watched it yet, but it is on the books for this evening. Every Christmas for the last four years, myself and my now wife, Erin, have watched Eloise at Christmas Time, which is an ABC Family original movie from about 2004 starring the one and only Julie Andrews. I can quote every word. I love it so much. So I'm so excited because that's how we know it is Christmas time. What about you, Erin? Well, uh, yes, it is Christmas time when we're recording this podcast. And I would love to tell you about all the Christmassy things I'm doing. But I got to be honest, the only things I have been watching, reading or listening to have been related to my doctoral thesis, because I am wrapping it up in this season. That's the crazy thing about the holidays is you finally get a little bit of time and you immediately fill that time with all the other things you have to do. So um, I do have a thesis coming out, hopefully, God willing, knock on wood, in early uh, 2021. And we will see about that. But right now, that is literally where I live is is in a looking at a, um, a theology of intimacy uh, for the discipleship of emerging adults. That's where we're at. Um, but uh, but I'd, I'd love to have more fun things. So Mimi, welcome to the podcast. What are you watching, reading, or listening to? Okay, so I'm engrossed in these two books, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkerson. She is a New York Times bestseller author, and she's talking about the very issues we'll discuss today. Ontology and purpose. What is the meaning of embodiment? How has it been exploited? And what is God's purpose for human flourishing? And my other book by Jane Overstreet, who is president and CEO of the Development Associates International. She wrote a book called Unleader, published by IVP. And I've made every single mistake in this book. (laughs) (laughs) And I wish that I had had this book guiding me I had the Holy Spirit, and so it's obvious that God is working through all venues, but this book is a real lifesaver, and gosh, where have you been all my life? (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic. Yes, we will definitely put some links to those books in the show notes because those are fantastic recommendations. We will not be putting a link to Eloise 
Christmas or whatever that is, Blake Dean. I love you, but that's that's yours, my friend. It's so good. I promise. But enough about Eloise. Um, so Mimi, we'd love to first start talking off about um, something that you've written on and presented about, um, which is the historic trend of Christian reformers, everyone from the Protestant Reformation to the abolitionist movement. And you make the observation that, quote, reformers see in profound ways a deep biblical truth in the whole of scripture that has gone unnoticed. Could you summarize this observation for our listeners and maybe introduce the history of reform movements? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Thank you. Well, in every generation, the church undergoes renewal and reform. Historians largely accept this fact. The Holy Spirit is cleaning house, not just in your life and in mine, but in the church through history. So that we might be more perfectly clothed and remade in the image of Christ. And at the footstep of the, or at the doorstep of the church in every generation are issues that need to be resolved. We think of great reformers like the mystic Catherine of Siena, who confronted the corrupt and exploitive church leaders, whom she denounced as the priests and bishops who suck the life out of the church so that she has become very pale. Or St. Francis, who confronted the greed of church hierarchy uh, by stripping himself naked in the town of Assisi, where he lived, of his ex- handing his expensive clothes back to his family and marrying a metaphoric lady. Her name was Lady Poverty. He rebuilt the church on the principles of holiness, not exploitation, by begging for stones to build his chapel in San Damiano and by begging for food to feed his community. It, there are more books written on the life of St. Francis than any person of his era, though he never wrote a book himself. Wow. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And then yeah. there's Sojourner Truth, I could go on, who confronted the ontological devaluations of Africans and women in her famous speech, Ain't I a Woman? She said, mm. that man there, he says, women can't preach or have rights because well, Jesus was born male, and I ask you, where did Jesus come from? Jesus came <laughs> come on. from God and a woman, and man ain't had nothing to do with it. Wow. Now, there's a challenge to patriarchy, and it took Karl Barth hundreds of pages to say the same thing. <laughs> Go ahead. Love it. <laughs> so I would say that um, reformers see a truth that is desperately needed to advance human flourishing in the moment that they live and they find each other and address it across geographic, racial, social class lines. And God uses that to make us more like Jesus. Ah, love that. Now, Mimi, as, as something that you you sort of touched on, even just in this in, in your introduction and summary, is that reforms are so important to our church history, and we have these famous reformers that have done these amazing things. But looking back at these, there's a very thin red line between reforms and heresies. In fact, many of the famous reformers and reforms that have been a part of the church history were sometimes seen as heresies in their early days by those who were who weren't sure yeah. if this was a good thing or not. But because those reforms are so important and it's so important for us to understand the history and the value of them, you've outlined uh, several elements of reform movements, things that we can recognize reforms by that help us understand their value and their grounding. Um, so can you take us through some of the, the elements that you've outlined for reform movements? Yeah, I sure can. And you, you really raised an important 
observation, Aaron, in saying that they appear to be heretical. And sometimes mm -hmm. they are. It's just a side wind. You know, a lot of reform movements are pushed beyond where they were supposed to go or into new places that really aren't going to lead to human flourishing. Mm. And so it's important, but it does sound kind of foreign to ear, our ears as they begin to make their case, right? Yeah, right. Um, so for example, lots of people lost their lives in the Copernicus reform because we really were ready to die against this false claim that the earth was the center of the universe, right? Right. The primary qualities of a reform uh, really center on first uh, a God moving typically academics or scientists into a place where they're realizing that the facts that they see are cohesive, they're powerful, they're uncontested, and yet they're desperately needed. And I think about, for example, the early evangelicals. Mm. Uh, or let's, let's talk about the, the Protestant Reformation, going back a little further. The church had sold its soul undermining the doctrine of the atonement in order to pay for their lavish living as priests, bishops, and popes. And so they had this weight of materialism that had to be paid for, and they began selling indulgences. And to do that, they had to bury Christ's death for all as backwater, uh, it lost its grip in the teachings and practices of the church. And it was mm. morally corrupt and eventually People like Martin Luther, they were tormented by the Holy Spirit in a good way to see a new truth in the Bible, which he then translated in others. And they brought this revelation back to the life of the church, and it was an important reform. Likewise, the abolitionists and the suffragists, or what I would call the early evangelicals, began to challenge this idea of devaluation based on an accident of birth or based on the events of birth. So if you were born with African ancestry, darker skin, or you were embodied a female, this had, which is a fixed and unchangeable condition, right? You're, you come out of the womb with parents who are from Africa or from other places, but your skin is darker, or you come out of the womb female, and that is a fixed and unchangeable condition that shapes your sphere of service and governance the rest of your life, often creating a superior embodied group of people who police and oversee and often abuse those who are embodied in different ways. The early evangelicals were known to preach on Galatians 2.20 more than any other group in history. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The mm. in me formulation of Paul is actually found in the Bible 216 times. Oh, wow. And the early evangelicals were like, that's it. That's it. That doctrine of the atonement means that all the elements of my embodiment are subsumed into taking on Christ. Mm. And so Galatians 3.28 rose to the fore of their activism that in Christ there is neither Jew or Greek slaver free male or female for we are one in christ so that was what christ accomplished on the cross reconciliation between god and humanity and between members of his body and that was the reformulation of atonement and sanctification that the early evangelicals said that's it this is the end to slavery this is the end of the subjugation of women we're going to build the church on the principles of atonement and sanctification. 
So when I see you, whatever your embodiment is, I don't see your restrictions, but I see Christ in you able to do more than I can dream or imagine possible. So it's not the limitations of what I see in your body, but the limitlessness of God in you. And that, wow. that did it. That was yeah. it. And the treatises they wrote, 47 or more, Frederick Douglass, of course, was the great articulator of this position for slaves and sojourner and others. And that was what made it. So it was initially an intellectual encounter with a deep truth. That's stage one. Eventually, these academic ideas were popularized by the troubadours, the artists, the literary people, um, the African spirituals, the songs, the stories of Sojourner Truth, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was they were able to take these more abstract ideas around atonement and scripture and say, look, we live in a world that has always known slavery, but this is why slavery is not the path to human flourishing. Feel what it feels like to be a slave. And that's what the popularizers did through their music and their art. And then eventually another stage, they come, I'm not going to say they all roll out in a linear way, but the next thing that happens is that these reformers, through their art and through their scholarship, find each other around the world. So hmm. not just a bunch of people twirling around in Canada or, you know, up in Massachusetts or Philadelphia where Harriet Tubman worked, right? It's everybody going, oh my gosh, this is what God is calling us to. So it's the church global. And right. they began to invest themselves in these ideas. And as they talk to each each other like egalitarians today which we'll do more of in coming months but egalitarians in Africa egalitarians in India and egalitarians um, out in some other community they see the same truth but in their context mm, and as yes. you hear about in their context you like this has got to be it because it's it's working everywhere mm. there's a pragmatic and really eternal truth to it. And that calls the church to these deep spiritual disciplines of prayer. You remember that during the civil rights movement, when every victory was had, everyone fell to their knees. And before an event, a significant event, there was deep, deep prayer. And if you do the virtual tour of the civil rights movement, which we're all gonna do next year as a CBE staff, oh, you fantastic. see the civil rights spiritual power that came through seeking God in all of it. And so there's this purification spiritually that that was important to the movement because there were these side winds that do occur. And then the position under critique begins to backpedal. There's the first sign, right? The position under critique begins to go, oh, it's slavery, but it's, it's a humane slavery. It's separate but equal, but it's a humane separation. Or it's headship with a heart. We, men are heads, but they're, it's, a, it's a gentle, provisional, providing headship. At the end of the day, it's not shared governance. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, yeah. it undermines human flourishing. And then once these back, the backpedaling starts, there's no stopping it because eventually they realize this is ridiculous. The, the emperor has no clothes on. Let's just go. And, and so that, you see that in all these reform movements. You know, people don't want to let go. It, 
And when you think about it, scholars invested their entire life defending these positions. How can they, how can they repent? Well, the Baptists repented of slavery. Um, uh, they were able to say, hey, it's not our website really, but we did separate from the Northern Baptists because we wanted slave owners to be missionaries. That That's should right. be on the front page. Yeah. Eventually we'll hope to see something like that about women. I love that. And I'd love for you to talk maybe um, just a touch more specifically. I'm known to ask questions that we didn't prepare you for. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I wonder if you could speak just a touch more specifically about the role of scripture in the understanding of these kind of eternal truths or these um, movements of God and the spirit, because there's clearly many different ways that we feel we could go on certain things. So what is the role of scripture in that? Why is it um, important to understand scripture rightly in prayer? Well, a great person to read on this is Gordon Fee, um, The Spirit in the Text. It's a very small book, but really succinct, and it says it all. And I quote it frequently. Gordon Fee, one of the great literary critics of the New Testament, argued that the Spirit of God actually lives in the text, that there is no other book we have that has been so carefully evaluated by the church through history as God's voice. The problem is, is that people with privilege knowingly or unknowingly, protect that privilege in the way they translate the Bible, interpret it, preach it, elevate one passage over another or one theme over another. And we've seen through history, as women become more involved in the interpretive and translating process, as slaves began to interpret and translate the Bible, you'll remember the passage scripture was, I think the slaves had less than 40% of the Bible to their access because so much of it had been censored. Chiseled. Chiseled. Yeah. yeah, censored from them. It didn't matter because revivals broke out on the slave plantations. You really can't box God or exploit people and expect God not to step in. There you go. So as women and slaves got involved in the interpretive process, they began to see things nobody else saw. And here's an example. I went to a party with some friends and they pulled out a picture of a family event. And there are all these people in this picture. And they asked their four-year-old, hey, what, who do you, what do you see in this picture? And she goes, there's my cousin Ruth. I'm like, Ruth, where's, <laughs> I don't see Ruth in this picture. There's this little tiny head peeking around her mom's knees. But that's who she identified with, her best friend and her cousin Ruth. We didn't see it. That's kind of what happens. You, you identify with the experiences of people in scripture, with the Hagars, if you're an oppressed and exploited woman, yeah. uh, with the sufferings of Christ, if that's what you have known. It's very normal to do that. And so when only one type of person exegetes, translates, teaches, preaches the Bible, and that's in some ways what happened through history, like businesses or organizations, when everybody gets involved suddenly, we see more and we're more ethical, more empathic to the plight of other people. And that leads to more productive teams and human flourishing. Amen. Mm, yes. And the glory of God. Amen. Yes. The glory of yes. God. Amen. So not to not to reduce anything, but just as I'm I'm absorbing this and and thinking about it, it sounds like maybe that that when we look at reform movements within the church and within church history, we can we can know and and lean into them because they go they are they are recapturing and and um, 
resuscitating the gospel. They're going back and saying, hey, we've lost something. We need to go back to Christ. We need to go back to the cross. And there's also a universality to it because when we see it happening, we see it happening across the globe in different cultures, but the same need to go back to the cross and to recapture it and say, hey, we've missed something in the way we've interpreted it um, and the way we we see people and the way we're treating people and our theology is tainted by something. Um, and uh, and so that's that's very helpful, I think, because I think when, when people are listening to our podcast or reading uh, literature from CBE and wondering, you know, this is new, this is different and something resonates in me, there's something that in me that gives a yes to this, but I also want to be careful and not be deceived or move away. I think at, at the end of the day, being able to, as a community, keep coming back to the cross, keep coming back to the gospel and the implications of that gospel and say, see, this is the reform that's needed because this other thing, this this theology that's being handed, this sort of headship with a heart, uh, separate but equal, is not actually the gospel. It doesn't actually uh, connect or jive with with Christ. Um, so just I just wanted to kind of uh, just rephrase that a, a little bit uh, as I'm hearing it. But but feel free to to correct any of that if I'm if I've uh, missed something there. No, I think it's really a helpful summary because we want to be people of faith saying to one another, we have this enormous challenge, there's enormous suffering in this community and in all communities like this, come let us reason together and ask the Spirit to speak to us afresh from the text. And I, I, yeah. I, I pity, I mean, I think about scientists like Francis Collins, who heads the NIH, the National Institute of Health, and who also was in leadership of the Genome Project. And he's such an amazing anointed scientist. And yet his work can be, is often critiqued unfairly because he's asking some important questions about evolution and the, the genetics. I mean, this team, this global team mapped out the human, the human DNA project, which led to incredible treatments for genetic disease. So it was, it's actually significant in advancing human flourishing. Now he said he's battling his greatest challenge, which is COVID. Mm. Right, he said it's the biggest, worst foe he's faced. But the, the, that's the kind of thing theologians are doing in the same sphere with embodiment and gender and women around the world, and they're working in partnership with social scientists, humanitarians. CBE works at both ends: ideas and consequences. Our call from God is to dismantle theological patriarchy as the biblical ideal and social practice of the church. And I'll tell you, it's going to take a lot of presidents to make this finally happen. It's going to take mm. many teams to do this. But it's an important project, and we're seeing some significant and important advances. Well, now that you've brought up CBE, I'd love to circle back to the reform movement in just a moment. But um, I wonder if you could talk about how CBE contributes to the f reform needed in church and society, as you just mentioned. What is CBE doing? Well, as you well know, we have, um, we're a publishing house, and we have an academic and a popular journal. They're award-winning. They come out and address the practical issues of egalitarianism, or uh, as people seek to realign their lives in a more biblical way around power and dominance between men and women. And our academic journal addresses the more theoretical or theological ideas. We hold conferences every year and we have chapters around the world and partnerships with organizations to do the kind of work we would love to do, but they are experts in their region. Mm. 
So uh, we teach in institutions, we help uh, academics, we're active in the Evangelical Theological Society. There are, there are very few Christian communities that aren't in some way interested in the issue of gender and power. I know those who are working in Christian institutions such as yours, we've found that women heading institutions, head of departments, head as president on boards, the numbers are really kind of slim. We're seeking to understand why. In the secular academy, women are probably less than half or a little bit more than half of men. But in the Christian academy, it's half again. In women of color, it's half of that. Yeah, so we're trying wow. to find out where these systemic challenges exist, why they exist, and what we can do to witness, be a better witness to Christ. So that, just as an overview, we work in Bible translation I mean, we seek to understand and equip various Christian communities from the academy to the local church. Yeah, that's, that is so great, Mimi. I, I can't recommend CBE highly enough. I found you guys, gosh, it was, well, it's been a handful of years now, but I was at a part of my journey with gender theology where I needed to make sure that I had really, really good um, articles and references that I could offer to my students as I was moving into chaplaincy and being uh, at the time the only female at the school with an advanced theology degree. I realized I needed to find something that I could just direct my students towards and and then also continue to nurture my own gender theology and and keep it keep it smart and uh, but also faithful to Christ and scripture. And so finding that niche of resources that fits all of those things, um, I was so, so glad for CBE because you guys really are a clearinghouse for all of these things. So so the magazine is very accessible, but the academic journal uh, allows uh, for my students in writing their research papers and things to have a reference um, that, that brings these things together. Um, and so I can't recommend it highly enough, but I, I really am just amazed at how much of a spectrum you guys cover and offer to people who are on this journey. So I know our listeners are on this journey, and uh, and that's why we want to not so subtly point you guys towards the CB's resources that we will have linked in the show notes. Absolutely. And I think it's so helpful as well to hear not only what CBE does, but why you do it, which is a part of being another voice, a part of the body of Christ, bringing hopefully egalitarianism as a church reform to help the church re-envision what it means to image Christ together in um, our, one of our favorite phrases, the blessed alliance, um, which is Carolyn Custis James, blessed alliance of men and women. I wonder if you could talk really briefly, just to kind of double down on this, on how egalitarianism is part of the ch- a church reform movement and not simply like a fringe result of maybe secular ideals of feminist theory. Yeah. The difference, I think, between secular feminism and Christian fe- feminism or Christian egalitarianism is centering the work of Christ, that our, our, our Christian, our shared governance comes from the teachings of the Bible where secular feminists are not burdened by a biblical authority. But having said that, we do work across denominational lines and even across different faith traditions, which is incredibly interesting. I've been working with Islamic feminists for a number of years. And actually, patriarchy is not that creative. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again for the people Sew in the back. <laughs> you know, it's really fascinating because you can trace uh, the roots of patriarchy in this, this gender essentialist thinking, the idea mm. that embodiment is authority. 
and mm. the marginalization of women's achievements through history and religious history, this blurring of the creator-creature divide when it comes to men but not women. Mm. And we see that even in our own tradition. I mean, that's where I spend most of my time. But, you know, we hear often that Christianity has a masculine feel to it. John Piper made that observation. I can't help but feel that that, you know, aligns with so much of the world's patriarchy. They want to elevate masculine embodiment. Christianity has a Jesus feel to it. Mm, that's Go right. Ahead. Yep. That is Christian faith. So we, we want to be clear about that. And when you consider that over 82%, a very reliable study was produced arguing, demonstrating that over 82% of the world adhere to a religious tradition. And most of the main religious traditions, the three Abrahamic faiths, elevate male leadership in their teachings and practices. And if patriarchy leads to deflourishing of humanity, which all human, all humanitarian organizations argue, then we have to see the importance of this message as Christians. Because at the present moment, Christianity has a slim majority among faith traditions. Yeah. And also how important it is, as we very briefly talked about with Dr. Westfall in a previous episode, that actually our text doesn't support this model either. So it's not a abandonment of Holy Scripture, but instead an engagement of the full implications of the gospel and of Paul's teachings and of the witness of the canon. And I, I think another thing um, that I've been thinking about today that I think CBE does enormously well um, that that kind of separates a Christian feminism from a quote-unquote secular feminism, even though there's things that we share, is a emphasis on our dependence on one another. So it's not trying to create hyper-individuals or hyper-autonomy, but rather saying, no, we are built for the glory of God together, mm -hmm. both men and women. Mm -hmm. And that means that for men such as me in our places of privilege, that we do release some of our privilege and power mm -hmm. and listen to the ways that historically women have been degraded or dehumanized or led to deflourishing. But certainly the vision is a joint vision together of men and women um, worshiping God together and um, helping bring his kingdom to earth. So I love that CBE does that. And I think um, you've articulated that very well. I think the um, one of the challenges with Christian patriarchy or patriarch as a whole is illness as a character quality, right? And the Bible teaches us that character in any embodiment comes through intimacy with Christ. Yeah. And those are the great reformers in the world, right? Those who, I think of the mystics who put aside all these entrapments that we have every day, you know, the cars, the lawns, the houses, all of it, reputation, all of it, a pursuit of accolades. They put all of it behind and they say, I want to be foremost renewed by the power of Christ. That is certainly what leadership is, right? It is not an embodied quality. It is an eternal spiritual quality. And I really think if we can figure that out and share across, as you say, as, as male and female, as the church corporate, the gifts God has given us through character, leading with character. Um, and that, that's a, that will be a huge transformation for evangelicals because we don't, we have We've been for so long encased in this idea that men are leaders, not so much in character leadership, but in maleness. Right, right. And that's where we, that's the, I think that's the next frontier for 
egalitarians because we've really done pretty well with biblical scholarship, historical scholarship, systematic theology. I think the last frontier for us really is um, really exposing and addressing essentialism. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I well, think you're probably right. Yeah. And I love, I love that phrase that um, we have defined leadership as equaling maleness um, rather than character or rather like rather than equal cruciformity, uh, which is we have assumed that maleness equals Christ likeness because Christ was embodied as a male rather than Christ likeness in all of our particularities to look like Christ in cruciformity to follow his example. I think that's on the money. You know, they've done, they've done a bunch of studies in, un, with undergrad Christian schools at, at a particular institution out East. They asked students, you know, disguise the fruit of the spirit, you know, so you wouldn't recognize it from reading it so many mm. times as a kid. They hid the, they, they masked the, they used these qualities, the fruit of the spirit. And, um, but it was obvious that it wasn't coming straight from the Bible. And they said, are these, male or female qualities mm. and what would you think male yeah that's right. oh, i <laughs> went for the went for the long shot how dare you <laughs> but you see that 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 is sort of demonstrating sociologically that we align the fruit of the spirit with masculinity and paul says the people who you select as leaders and when he's talking about overseers and deacons and widows right? Who you select as a leader, absolute parallel with the fruit of the spirit and absolutely in contrast to the fruit of the flesh. Mm. But we don't, we see male, 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 male. We don't. <laughs> yeah. Peace, joy, patience, long suffering, holiness. Yeah. So that really, I think that's where we have to spend a, a lot more time. Oh, absolutely. And, and just to, just as we, we start landing the plane here, one thing that I want to reemphasize that um, Mimi, you've already, you've already said a couple of times, but for our listeners' sake, the the mission of, of Christians for Biblical Equality International is, of course, um, you know, this this idea of discovering egalitarianism within, within gender and within understanding, you know, uh, the historical range of what's happened between men and women, but there is a, a racial and ethnic and cultural element to this. I, I was so impressed years ago, my first CBE conference, about how before the sessions, different representatives from different cultures and languages would get up and open prayer in their their native language. And I must have heard prayers from a dozen different languages uh, that that conference. And I was so just so drawn to this and so impressed by this and then seeing the global network that CBE has and, and seeing just the, the continued commitment to saying no equality as the gospel states it. Um, we have to understand what's happening in gender, but we also have to understand these power dynamics and these implicit biases as they result uh, from, from race, ethnic and, and, and global uh, situations that are different from each other. And so CB has worked really hard to bring that into the conversation and bring people into the circle that are going to help us with those implicit biases. And, and um, you know, it's very easy for us to slip into this sort of Western ethnocentric mindset, but I see CBE really pushing back against that and, and continuing the work. So um, it, listeners may not know that you guys do conferences in America, and then the next year, do them internationally. Um, and if you go back, and friends, I encourage you to do this, go back and CB's website and look at all the places where they've hosted their conferences internationally. It will 
astound you. So just had to put that out there again, because um, it is just so refreshing to see uh, a group of people who are are really championing all of these things in the name of the gospel. So thank you, Mimi, for for doing that and, and even for being with us today. My pleasure. It's an example of the church universal, right? egalitarian. Yes. Thank you very much. I just love being with you. I, I am grateful for this time that you've given uh, me and the organization that I represent. And thank you for being such great ministry partners and look forward to many more um, opportunities. Thank you, Mimi. We were so good to have you, and we are so excited to um, continue to see what CBE does and, uh, and and just keep connecting you guys to our listeners. Thanks again. Well, say a prayer for us as a chaplain, please. Give us a benediction. Oh, yes, I'd be, I'd be happy to. Um, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we lift up Mimi and her team and all those who are partnered um, within CBE. We pray that you bless them. We pray that you keep them safe um, in all of their various contexts, that you will empower them with the truth of your gospel, that you will lift them up when they are frustrated, that you will care for them and give them rest when they are hurting, um, that you will give them wisdom and uh, beautiful uh, partnerships and joy in the collaborative work that um, you have commissioned them for, for the, for the work of your kingdom. Um, and Lord, we do pray for your kingdom. We pray, uh, Lord, that you come quickly, that you come soon, that you restore us. And in the meantime, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may be your agents of your truth um, for the gospel empowerment of men, women, and all um, people across your church globally. Father, we pray this blessings. We ask this of you, and um, we recognize our, our need of you. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>